Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 12 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. Normally, I would be joined by my co-host, Ashi Vale, but she's on maternity leave for a few months. Today, we'll be speaking with our guest, Tung Do, a Vietnamese-American whose family escaped to the U.S. at the end of the Vietnam War in 1975 and settled in Texas. After spending 10 years as a securities trader, Tung returned to Vietnam in 2009 to do charity work for one year. However, he fell in love with the country and decided to stay, eventually starting four different businesses there. The most successful business Tung runs in Vietnam is Exo Tours. Exo Tours offers city and food tours on scooters in both Ho Chi Minh City and Hoi An. Welcome, Tung. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me. Tung, when I was reading your bio, I was really curious how an ex-securities trader gets involved in food tours in Vietnam. What, what prompted you to make the big change? I came, like you said, I came to Vietnam, I think the end of 2009, just to do charity work. I just went through a divorce. I was really depressed and I knew I needed to get out of the country. So since uh, I could speak a little bit of Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam seemed like a good country to to, to travel to. I felt that if I, once I started doing charity work and I kind of saw what real suffering was like, that I would stop feeling sorry for myself and it worked. <laughs> uh, within a month, I was feeling much, much better. And, um, you know, I, I thought I would actually be really uncomfortable in the country because I'm one of these people that when I travel, I like to stay in really high-end hotels. That's what I used to do. I used to stay in $500 a night, uh, hotel rooms and, and things like that. So I'm not one of the people that can rough it really well. And uh, I heard Vietnam was a developing country. So I was worried that I would be really, really uncomfortable here. Um, but, you know, I didn't. And, you know, and it, it didn't take long for me to acclimate to the country, to the people, to the weather. And after a year, I just thought this country is really growing and developing really quickly. If I left without actually trying to start a business over here, I think I would regret it. So I looked at the economy and was considering what industries were, were developing. And I thought the tourism industry was just still in the infancy stage. And there weren't a lot of really great high quality products over here. And also like when people come to Vietnam, usually when they step out of the airport, they'll be shocked by immediately by the number of motorbikes over here. And I just thought that a few people, adventurous people, maybe a small percentage of them would want to um, try to get on a motorbike, have this experience, this crazy experience of being in this traffic. And um, what better way to, uh, to experience the traffic than going with the local? But at that time, there weren't really any uh, motorbike tours where you had tour guides that could speak English. There were a few that were taking people around to the main tourist attractions, but they were driven by men that couldn't speak any English. So I thought that if you maybe somebody created a tour company that had well-spoken, highly trained uh, tour guides, 
that could speak fluent English that it might be uh, it might take off. And I thought, what better way to really attract like basically any kind of guests, like uh, children or families and stuff like that. If I hired women, they would feel comfortable because they're in Asia. You know, a lot of women, especially from other Asian countries, they're not comfortable about sitting on the back of a motorbike driven by a man. And especially maybe like some of the more religious countries, they're they're especially not even allowed to sit uh, next to men. And I thought that little children also, they would uh, feel more comfortable with uh, women. I just started the idea with Exo Tours with Vietnamese women wearing traditional dress. Nice. So you needed a big change. You chose Vietnam. You got there and you saw there was opportunity. But what made you decide to start a food tour? Are you a foodie or did you just love the food? What what prompted that? I mean, I, I enjoy Vietnamese food, but to be honest, I'm not a foodie. I've never been. I, I'm like one of those people that eat to live and not <laughs> to eat. Um, but Vietnamese food, like when people come to Vietnam, um, street food, Vietnamese food, is a, a, one of the big reasons why people travel this country. And, and Vietnamese food over the years, as you probably know, has really taken off all over the world. People, everybody knows about the French-inspired banh mi sandwiches and pho, the pho noodles and stuff like that. But they don't really get exposed to a lot of more local dishes, more adventurous dishes. My friends, when I came to Vietnam, they would drive me around. We'd try all these amazing uh, street food locations. And I just thought that I would bet that a lot of tourists would love to go to these places and try these different types of dishes. And no other tour companies were doing that over here. So we just combined the whole scooter city tour experience with food. And, uh, and within a few months, it really, really took off. And we were, I think we were probably the first motorbike food tour in Vietnam. Are there any others today that are doing that now or trying to copy you? I think there's probably at least three, four hundred companies now. A lot of them are they they hired women. They they copied. They ripped off our website to copy things. But that's kind of par for the course in Asia. There's not a lot of uh, protection of intellectual property over here, so we really can't avoid it. And I try not to focus on it too much. I just focus on things I can control. So we we built a brand over the years, and a lot of people still they trust our brand and they they trust that our staff are are safer and we uh, offer more professional products. So we've still been able to grow even though there's so much competition out there now. And you have first mover advantage as well. So once you stake your claim, you're you're first and no one else can unseat you from that role. When you were a security chair, which came first, the the divorce and the desire to move or were you tired of your career or was there any I mean what which what was first, the chicken or the egg there? Well, I'm not actually much of a traveler myself, to be honest. And I've only left, you know, I left the U.S. just a few times in my life. And especially, I, I rarely traveled alone. I usually traveled with, in the past, when I left the country, we traveled with family or my, my ex-wife. So traveling wasn't something that I was a priority in my life. And moving to a different country overseas definitely wasn't something I ever thought of doing. It was just basically the, the stress of the divorce kind of, made me i needed i felt like i needed to get out of country to just clear my head and to feel better about you know my life to put my life in perspective basically so it wasn't i loved you know being a securities trader i think it was still something and still something i'm really really passionate about but it's difficult to trade in vietnam you know with the distance and the time change and sure. and the poor internet connections and uh, it's something i think i would probably want to go back and do later in the future but uh, with all the businesses i'm running actually right now and i can't focus on being a securities trader 
That's right. I think your bio said that you run four different businesses now. Did that right. must not leave much free time. People would be actually surprised by how much free time I have. I am busy, but uh, the thing I think I learned a lot from starting Exo Tours, which was my first business, I learned how to delegate. I think learning how to delegate is actually the most important quality you, you need to learn when you're running a business. You really can't scale and grow a business if you're trying to do everything yourself. If you're running around, leading on tours, doing everything, you're gonna be tired, you're gonna be exhausted, you won't be able to kind of see the big picture, step back and see the big picture and understand what you need to focus on to grow your business. When we were talking, uh, it came out that that was kind of your aha moment, that it wasn't really until you hired someone else that your business took off. Uh, it was like my first tour manager, and I, and I and I had actually been trying to hire somebody before. It was like I think a year and a half into running Exo Tours that I actually hired him, and uh, he was like like a Singaporean guy that lived here in uh, Ho Chi Minh City, and he was in the military, so he was very disciplined. So he came in, you know, I had written a script because he didn't know all the stuff that we did on the tours. And he didn't know how to run the tour. So to help him out, I wrote a script for him. And then he just followed the script, memorized it within a couple of days and started being able to lead the tours. And that took a lot of pressure off me. But once he led the tours and was able to train other tour leaders that I could actually stay at home and start focusing on the marketing side of the business. Yeah, I'm sure I just opened things up so you could focus on the sales and marketing with, you know, you need that for any business to succeed. So you've been running these tours and when you hired this other person, was this the first person you interviewed or did you have to go through a lot of people? Um, he was the person, I was friends with him before. Like he was actually active on Twitter in Vietnam and Twitter is actually not, it, it never took it off in Vietnam. It's still not popular. I think it's a few expats use it. But at the time I didn't know and I, I didn't use social media much at that then, but I was trying to, network when I first came to Vietnam because I didn't know anybody. So he was actually one of the first expats I met while in Vietnam. And just by talking to him and learning his personality, I actually thought he would be a good fit hmm. for the business. And so I tried to talk him into joining it. And actually, he rejected my offer, I think, uh, half a year before, before he actually joined. So I didn't interview a lot of people. I actually had him in mind. And I, I kind of kept on uh, approaching him about this and urging him to join me before he finally actually agreed to. What was it that you said to him that made him accept your offer? I think he just saw like how <laughs> he was surprised by how fast the business was growing and you know, our revenue was like doubling, tripling within a few months and he, would, he wanted to be a part of it. It seemed exciting for him. He had been trying to start some businesses himself, which didn't really take off. So just to be part of a, a business that was really taking off, I think he was excited about the opportunity. Nice. Well, I know that you had mentioned that you were concerned about the overall quality of tours being offered in Vietnam. And I think you were saying that basically there was a lot of copycat companies trying to get involved in this. What's the current situation in Vietnam and what can be done to uh, improve the quality and consistency of the food tours there? I think it's, it's difficult, especially for a lot of these tourism businesses that focus on travelers because most of the websites, most of these businesses don't even have an office. They're not legally registered. They don't have an address. So the government, even when they want to crack down on them, they don't even know where to find these people. And um, they're running the website in English. Most of the people that in the government that manages the, 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 the tourism department, stuff like that, they, they don't have staff that can read or speak English that can track these businesses down. So I think it's really 
difficult issue to really uh, to fix. Only if the government starts having staff that can really follow up, you know, maybe look on the list of TripAdvisor, these businesses on TripAdvisor, and try to contact them and figure out where they are and meet up with them and find them. That's the only way to stop these businesses from proliferating. But right now, it's so easy for anybody to have a website and start a business and offer tours. That is, is, and they're offering tours for really low, cheap prices. They're taking bits away from a lot of legitimate businesses that are offering higher quality products. I'm surprised there aren't more people in the government there that, that speak sufficient English to be able to track that stuff down. A lot of tour business over here, even though they have English-speaking staff, English ability over here is still isn't great for most of the tour companies. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame because, you know, even if people are not native English speakers, as most of us know, English is really the international language of travel and business. And we get guests from Asia and from France, from Russia and stuff like that. And most of them know even, you know, rudimentary English, if, if not pretty fluent. If our staff can speak English, it's a big, it helps to communication between our staff and the, our guests a lot. So what do you think could be done? I mean, could there be some kind of a certification or not just about the English language, but maybe about the professionalism? What do you, what do you see would be the next step for food tours in Vietnam? You know, there's certifications, I mean, for tour guides, there are definitely certifications the government has right now. But the problem with Asia is there's a lot of corruption also. So, you know, a lot of certifications can be bought and people are bribed. So a lot of these certifications are meaningless, I think. Mm. Uh, I think that the, the only way for to increase the, the standards, I think, is by example. And, you know, the, the successful company, if you, if you know, the lower quality business, see how successful business maybe like Exo Tours or other businesses similar to ours or not even motorbike tours or food tours, but just tours in general increase their standards. And they're seeing that they're successful by because they're hiring and training better staff just by the fact that they're making more money than these other fly by night businesses. It might get them to try to hire better staff and train them better. You know, it's interesting you say that. And also when travelers to Vietnam are looking at websites like TripAdvisor or any of those other kinds of platforms and everything is four and a half to five stars, how do you choose? TripAdvisor just made it much more uh, difficult recently because uh, in March of this year, they changed the way they rank these businesses. So a lot of the smaller businesses that in the past had more difficulty rising in the rankings. Now it's much easier actually, I think, to rank higher now when you're a small business because they're, they're basing the ranking more on how many five-star reviews you have in comparison to the other reviews. So now you're seeing businesses with just one or 200 reviews on the top of uh, TripAdvisor or near the top. And some businesses that have thousands of reviews that have been ranked at the top now dropping down 20, 30, 40 spots. Now, are those authentic reviews or are some of them fraudulent? In Vietnam, there's definitely, you can tell if you, you click on some of these businesses, you see a lot of first-time reviewers and the English, is, is the, the grammar is pretty bad. So, you know, <laughs> so that's but your clue that this you know, is not a real one. But a lot of times people don't read through a ton of reviews. They'll see the ranking and stuff and they'll assume TripAdvisor has done their due diligence and checked out these bits to make sure the reviews are, are real or not. But just from my experience, I've seen a lot of uh, fraud over here. Yeah, I don't know. Those, those third-party websites are challenging. I know in the States, Yelp is quite popular, but anyone who is a true food lover will laugh at Yelp and say, it's just, it's just not the real deal. And I've looked at it on 
many occasions and pretty much every rating is four and a half to five stars. You go to a city like Portland and everything, you know, all the top restaurants are four and a half to five stars, but having lived in Portland and knowing what's truly good and what's not and thinking, you know, I'm not quite sure that's worth 4.8 stars. What do you do? How do you trust I, I, a good thing too with us is that because we've taken so many customers over the years that a lot of a big percentage of our guests are actually from word of mouth and it's not so much we don't depend that much on uh, TripAdvisor and stuff as in the past. Word of mouth is, is really influential, very important, the most effective and the least expensive kind of promotion. If you could give your younger self a critical piece of advice, what would it be? I would have actually started business, tried to start a business earlier. The thing I, you know, even though I said that being a securities trader is actually my main passion, something I was really, really, I lo- love that job. But I think, you know, you learn so much from starting your own business and you learn not just about the business, you know, how to run a successful business or how to be profitable, but how to manage people. And you learn about yourself, you learn about your weaknesses. And if you're weak, something I've learned is like where I'm weak, I need to hire somebody, a staff that covers up that weakness to, to help me uh, to, to basically be more well-rounded, our business to make our business more well-rounded, basically. One of the things I'm actually weak with when I talk to people, I'm pretty direct. If I'm unhappy with something, you're going to know it. I don't talk around an issue or anything like that. So sometimes you kind of have to be subtle when you talk, especially when you manage staff. You just can't be direct like I am because you're going to hurt <laughs> a lot of feelings and people are going to be upset. They're going to quit. So when you manage staff, you kind of have to hold your tongue a little bit. And I've never been able to do that very well. So I've managed to hire people that deal with the staff directly for me. So I don't meet or have to talk to a lot of the staff. So with that, is that a cultural thing in Vietnam? Or would you say that applies anywhere in the world? I honestly couldn't say that I've only run my businesses in Vietnam. So I don't know, but I'm sure they're similar in a lot of kids. People have different personalities. Some people are really sensitive. I'm not, you know, so people can say really something really mean or terrible to me and I would just brush off. I don't really care, but uh, you know, other people aren't able to do that. Sure. That's true. Well, do you have one situation or one, or maybe something that went really wrong in your business and how did you fix it? My main problem is like the, the staff issues. And so I can't delegate managing staff to everybody because certain staff like the managers I have to manage directly sometimes I disagree with the way my managers approach things or or problems and stuff on the tours Mm -hmm. and uh, I would start going on a rant and start telling because some things I think are really obvious is common sense but what might be common sense to me might not be the same over here and uh, and like I said I, I learned to kind of hold my tongue a little bit and not to just be too so rash and then uh, and, and be upset about problems because when you run a business for so long especially you run tours almost every single day throughout a year you're going to encounter some difficult guests or un- unforeseen problems and stuff on the tour so I need to just learn to relax I've, le- I've learned to not like take any one situation or one day too seriously and just overall manage to just make sure that things that you know we have process in place so that everybody knows what they're doing yeah i guess that's really good advice because you could have some customers who are really wreck everyone's day the tour guide's day your day but in the end they may not really be worth all that they just may be some unhappy people and but they've ruined everyone's day but at the end of the day they're just one person or one group of people they're not your entire business and 
a lot of people might take that more more personally, especially people who are smaller business owners and maybe not run so many tours. So if you have one really angry tour out of 10 tours you give a month versus 40 tours you give a month, by the time you're on your 40th tour, you're going to forget about the angry people. <laughs> the beginning of the, you know, the business, I took things very, very personally. And the first time we got a, a three-star review, I messaged the, the customers like, why, why did you give it? And she didn't even complain anything. She didn't make any complaint. She just gave us a three-star review. So that really confused me. When so you, you talked to her after you, you reached out? Yeah, I sent her a private message on, on TripAdvisor. I wasn't upset. I didn't message her angrily. And basically, I said, I'm curious, you know, thank you for your view or joining us. I was actually, I led that tour. So at the time, we had like almost all five-star reviews, maybe one or two four-star reviews. So just having a three-star review out of nowhere just kind of kind of shocked me. So I, uh, I messaged. I, at the time, I was thinking, wow, we have this amazing tour. Everybody loves it. I'm never going to get a bad review. So she gave us a three-star review, which is not even a bad review. Now we actually have some one-star and two-star reviews. And in retrospect, it, three-star review is actually not bad. But she just told me that because we had gotten so many amazing reviews before that her expectations were higher. So it wasn't anything bad with the tour. She just had higher expectations. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So the bar has been raised now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so did you change your tours at all because of that feedback? No. And you know, but the thing is at the beginning, whenever you get a bad review and they mention something specific, you're tempted to do it. And then when I talked to my tour leaders and stuff about that, and they said, oh, maybe we should do that. This. And when I stepped back, I said, no, we're not going to do that because we got to number one on TripAdvisor. And we've been number one for so-and-so years and doing what we did, what we've been doing. So why would we change it based on just this one bad review? You can't please everybody. Some people are just going to be have unreasonable expectations and you kind of just have to deal that with that when you're a business owner. And I guess, I mean, it, it really does have to do with expectations. Like you said, she expected a lot more from her tour. And what is five stars to someone might be like in this situation, only three stars to her. And, and the thing is, I, I think in hindsight, I think she was right. My tours weren't that great at the time because we had such good rapport with the guests. And I think they're, they're you know, you're, when you're a new business and you have your new your employees are, it's new to them. You're excited. You have this energy level and it, it's easy to have uh, your energy to kind of pass on to the guests. And as long as you're energetic and happy, most people are going to, be satisfied with or happy if they like you most people like you not write you bad review it, at the time I, I thought the tours were great but in hindsight after we improved our tours over years i realized the tour wasn't that great at the time i'm actually more much more proud of our tours now than at the beginning so it it did have an effect then on your on your product development i guess you could say no i think i would i would have gone in this direction anyways because we just over time i examined the tours and then you compare your product to other people's products and you adapt over time, but sure. it's not necessarily in reaction to one particular reviewer or okay. one or two guests. But I mean, you, you do have to keep your tours fresh. You have to innovate. You have to mix up the stops. You have to maybe change your script and, and make things fresh and interesting. Well, what we're trying to improve all the time, every single day, every year that I'm actually proud of. It's like when some of our, our staff, like they quit and then they come back half a year or a year later, we've changed so much so that they have to relearn a lot of things. So we're just not being stagnant. We're not trying to be stale and just doing the same thing over and over. We're trying to innovate and adapt to the changing tourism environment. 
That's great to hear. And I wonder how many of those copycat tour companies in Vietnam are, are actually actively doing what you're doing. <laughs> so do you have a, a quote that you're known for, something that your staff always hear you saying? One of the things I tell my staff all the time is you never assume you know what people want. Uh, never assume things just based on something that a path experience. There is a quote, I think it says, the path never repeats, but it often rhymes. So you, know, you can anticipate some things that happen, but don't automatically assume you know before a guest tells you what they want, that you know what they want. You know, shouldn't lead people into direction, especially somebody like booking a custom tours. You should be like, if you're a tour leader, you should lead, but you shouldn't be presuming things and doing things just because taking people to certain places or doing certain things that you did in the past just because your past guests were happy. You kind of have to learn from each guest individually. So if you meet a, a person, you have to talk to them and gauge their reaction to, to what you're saying. You have to gauge to maybe the first few stops to see how much they're enjoying it. And if they're just saying they're enjoying it, stuff. so body language, facial expression, all these things, you have to pay attention to the little details. So in the same thing is like when, when my office staff, when they reply to email, sometimes because we have a form or template the way we reply to certain things that are general, but sometimes people ask something that are a little bit different and the, the guys use the same fixed template on that and I kind of get upset about that. You said you can't just automatically assume that this template is going to be able to reply and can answer every single email like that. You have to read things carefully and then adjust to the specific situation or to the specific guest. You said the past doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. I love that. I've never heard that before. Where's that from? I don't know. <laughs> I've read that a long time ago and it, it stuck in my mind. So that's, that's, that's a something. great saying. I'm going to have to, can I quote you on that? Sure, absolutely. But it's not my quote. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to have to look that up. And it looks like you've, you've been doing some reading. I guess you're a fan of Seth Godin. Yes, uh, he's one of the people that consistently he says really wise things every day. So I like the thing about him is his blog. He doesn't have to write a long multi-page blog to kind of get you thinking. Some of his, his, his stuff that he posts every day is just little tiny quotes or observations that are very insightful, not towards just for how to do things, but just insightful in terms of the human condition and how people think and how things that you do affect other people, things like that. Mm -hmm. Have you read his book, Purple Cow? Uh, honestly, I'm not a, I don't have time to read books that much anymore. I read a lot, but more uh, informative, like articles, blogs, things like that online that help me with my businesses. Uh, yeah. I spend much time for recreational reading or, or reading business books anymore. Oh, I, I always try to read something before bed. And he has a book, Purple Cow, and the subheader or subtitle of the book is Transform Your Business by Being Remarkable. That book really impacted me. I think it's, we have kind of an unwritten motto now at the association, be remarkable or be nothing. Because I think right. if you're not the best at everything you do, so the podcast we deliver, the education we deliver, all of that. If we're not the best, then who are we? Because there's someone else that can deliver mediocre training or interviews or, or writing or whatever. So you have to be the best in order to lead. At least strive to be the best. Yeah, well, exactly. Try to be the best for sure. Like, like you are with your tour company, right? <laughs> and I, you know, and, I, and one of the things that you, you were saying, like you might be known for, the thing I actually tell 
all my staff, especially because most of them are young women. And, you know, this is uh, Vietnam is still, even though a lot of successful women or is very, uh, still very patriarchal society. The husband has a say in whatever to do and you know how the house is run, how, you, what the women are, can or cannot do. So a lot of the girls of here, my staff, especially, all, almost all of them are college, college educated college graduates. And the sad thing that's going to happen to most of them, and they're going to follow the path that the culture over here pushes them to, or their parents tell them to do, which is uh, once you get married, you don't work, you stay home and be a housewife and you give up on your dreams. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, everybody, I think when you're young, you have dreams, you think that one day I'm going to be really successful. I'm One day I'm going to make a lot of money. One day I'm going to be this person and that person, I'll be famous or whatnot. But you notice that once people get into the 30s and they haven't achieved their dream, they've given up and they just settle into this pattern of life, you know, work nine to five, make, get a paycheck, try to buy a house, get into a lot of debt, buy things to keep up with the Joneses and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you're young that you have this energy that you, when you're young, you have to still have that ambition. You have the courage before you get married. You don't have the responsibility to take care of you. You don't have children. You don't have the responsibility to take care of your family and stuff like that. You can take a lot of risks, but once you get into a lot of debt, once you, you get married, you have family, you sometimes people, they accept that their life is never going to change after that. And they have to give up on the dreams. And I think that's a really sad thing to have to do. You know, it's interesting that you have made a, a cornerstone of your business to hire women in a patriarchal society. Have you gotten any recognition or awards for that? I did get an award that was nominated by one of uh, our guests. She really admired what we met or business managed to do. And so she nominated me. I forgot what the name of the award. I'm actually trying to find it right now. I listed it on my website about us, but I forgot what the name. Oh, cool. Award. But basically, it's, they nominate like a hundred people every year, I think, that have or make a difference in, in women's lives. And actually was one of only 11 men chosen in 2015. It's called, oh, now I see it, it's called the, the International Alliance for Women. Okay, so with the, fantastic. What I want was the World of Difference 100 Award. That's great to hear. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Now, I was reading a little bit about you, and it looks like your favorite book is Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. What's that all about? I've read, I think I've read that book three, four times, but I haven't read it actually in the over 10 years. So it's about this trader, I think in the early 19, you know, early, no, not think, but it was in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. And this was before the stock market crash. So it chronicles the life of this guy that how he started as like you know assistant like a errand boy in the stock market and running around and doing chores and he pays attention to all these guys that are making tons of money and he hears ticker tapes and sees how like you know the time they use these little i forgot what it's called but there's like these antique stock ticker and they print out the stock price in in these ticker tapes and he learned for us from price action by seeing the numbers going on the tape, how to predict when a stock was going up and down. And he became this amazing trader and made hundreds of millions of dollars. And he at one time was probably one of the richest people in the world, but also he became overconfident, over cocky and greedy and eventually lost all his money and think uh, he died a broke man. But it's interesting to kind of 
read about it and just somebody came from nothing and taught himself how to trade and became super rich and successful. But then he, he let his own ego and confidence. He wasn't careful enough, basically, and he uh, ended up losing everything and dying a pauper. So it's an interesting book and it's a good lesson for life, too. It's definitely a good lesson. I, I was looking up the book and I saw that it was published, was it in the 1920s, I think it was? Right. So I was wondering what the lesson there was, but you know what you said, how ego and overconfidence can, can ruin things. Um, that's, that's a lesson that a lot of people today still need to learn. I wake up in fear every day. Honestly, like not fear in ter- being terrified, but fear that if I kind of take my foot off the pedal, that we're just going to disappear. Nobody's going to know about us anymore. Nobody's going to go on a tour. Because like I said, there's so many competitors over here. There's so many options. So if you don't continually to try to promote and market your business and be different and offer something unique, any business can fail and disappear. You can't rest on your laurels. Right. Yeah, that's that's an excellent lesson. That is very true. We do see a lot of people that fail to continue to innovate and then they their businesses end up folding. Um, you see that sometimes in restaurants, but at the same time, you see restaurants that maybe they had a, a successful recipe or something, then they changed it. I, I know because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm based in the UK right now. There was a, a restaurant here. I forget the name of it, but they had chips, you know, French fries that they cooked in beef tallow. And then all of a sudden... The, the vegans, the vegetarians, um, people who prefer to um, eat kosher or halal wouldn't, didn't want those. So they changed the recipe and it ended up putting the business out of business. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've, I've, I've seen something similar. I, I grew up you know, in the U.S. I lived in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas, to be exact. There was a barbecue restaurant near my house. Uh, I think it was called Tom's Ribs. It was packed almost every day. You had lines outside the door. You had San Antonio Spurs, you know, the basketball team. You had, I would see these guys going there, standing there waiting for their takeout. And then once they got so popular, they opened up like, I think like two, three other branches. The quality went down and, and all of them ended up shutting down. Instead of just having one really popular, high quality location, they tried to expand beyond their capacity to manage it. Yeah. And ended up Join the business. I guess the lesson is that you shouldn't try to be all things to all people. That can be a real death knell. All right, let's talk about some of the fun stuff. What was your first food travel memory or your favorite one? The best food travel memory, actually, it, it was the first time travel outside of the U.S. on my own. Had an, uh, an ex-girlfriend. She was teaching English in Taiwan. And I had promised her when she left that I would come and visit so I'm one of these people that once I say something to so make a promise, I have to keep it, even though I didn't want to travel overseas and I had really not that much a desire to go to Taiwan. But I went over there and actually it was the most fun vacation up to now that I've ever taken. And the thing I, I enjoyed was I came over there and she could speak the language. I couldn't speak Chinese and she took me around everywhere and I didn't have to do anything. And she took me to like this Taipei night market and I saw oh, people... Yeah making street food and i mean i even saw like little tiny mice being fried up and stuff like that was i was terrified of that but you know it's really interesting because you're seeing things that you would never have seen in the u.s you see people enjoying it's, it's like really packed and lively and at, almost at midnight outside so it's something that really was entrenched in my memory you know it's funny you mentioned the taipei night market i have a friend back in portland and he raves about it he was telling me about the fried chicken it's the best fried chicken he's ever had in the world 
So I got to get there. <laughs> and is there anything that you miss from back in the States? Any kind of American foods? Well, I used to because growing up in Texas, sometimes like when my mom didn't have time to cook, we would stop by churches, fried chicken and eat fried chicken. And in Texas, when you eat fried chicken, you have they sell jalapenos too. So I would always eat fried chicken with jalapenos. So one of the things I miss over here is like I they don't have jalapenos over here. So the first year I was here, I, I asked my dad when he came, said, you want anything? Yes. I said, I want cans of jalapenos. So he went to Sam's Club and got me like these gigantic cans and brought up over here. And luckily, the time, too, they just opened a Popeye's chicken over here. So it wasn't the same as churches, but it was close enough. So you, you were able to get your fix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, Tung, uh, I think that should just about do it for today. Is there anything that you'd like to leave our audience with before we wrap things up? Yes. From personal experience, I just feel that if, if you have an original idea and you have the confidence to something to start, you know, the hardest thing, the hardest thing about running a business actually is starting a business because people are usually petrified about failing. So they'll talk themselves out of trying anything. But I've started for pretty successful businesses over here with no experience at any of them. Uh, to be honest, with even as a securities trader, I didn't have experience. And I just, I'm basically self-taught for all the, the different businesses that uh, I'm involved with and all the businesses I started. So I think that if you, you want to run a business, you should. If you want to start a business, you should. You shouldn't be afraid of, of failing. If you don't try, you'll definitely fail and you never accomplish anything. That's don't just, be scared uh, to try. Right. Yeah, I like it. Well, Tong, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure and very interesting to learn about you and your business. And I hope to meet you in Vietnam one day. Thank you. I would love to uh, invite you. Uh, I have a great guest house up here. You can stay and be in a local uh, Vietnamese neighborhood. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you. Thanks again, Tong. It was a pleasure. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel, produced by the World Food Travel Association. Join us next time where we learn from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. We'll meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, eat well and travel better.